This is Conquering Columbus. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is your co-host, Mike, here to give you a quick rundown on what to expect from this episode. And today on the show, we brought Bill Balderas from Futurity back on the show to talk about their new product, Huckle. We had a great time catching up with Bill, and early on, we talked about a little of Bill's background and how Futurity came to be for those who missed our first interview with Bill. Kind of took some time off, figured out what I wanted to do next, had a few things that did not work out, as probably a lot of entrepreneurs do. But I started Futurity in 2014, and it was really, we joked about not being able to say the name. It's not a good name. It's not easy to spell. It's not easy to remember. It's the case where the domain was available, and I didn't know what the company was going to be. So got the domain, put up a very general website, got some office space, and essentially just started meeting with past clients, similar to the, what worked for me before, asked, what would you write me a check for? What would you want me to build for you? And they all said, we have a lot of data, data analytics. We need help understanding that. And that's what Futurity became. Later, we asked Bill about his entrepreneurial spirit and what keeps him continuously driving new products and new ideas, both at Futurity and elsewhere. Sure. I think I do tend to be pretty antsy and always want to be building and driving. So I think it's probably more the latter. I don't think I intuitively see those patterns or those things, but I'm just always asking what's next? What's the next problem we can solve? And then yes, when I can build a team that then that problem gets solved, build a team that can continue innovating and solving that problem beyond my skill. Certainly our head of ops is a better ops leader than I'll ever be or head of sales, the better salesperson I'll ever be. But what can I do to think about the next thing? That's where I feel like I'm most successful and most impactful. We wrap up the show with some advice for anyone out there thinking about being an entrepreneur. I would say the market's right. You know, follow the market. I like fishing, but I can never make a living being a fishing guide because the market wouldn't pay me to do that. So you might love baking. You might love something. A lot of people tell you, follow your passions. I'm saying, you know, follow passions that the market validates. So make sure that it's something that people want and then figure out how to build it. I took statistics past failing college and here I'm running an analytics company. That's because, you know, I didn't have the skills to do the work, but we live a few blocks from one of the top universities in the country and there's a whole lot of smart data folks there. So being able to recruit and build that. But I would say find the problem that you can solve that the market wants you to solve and someone will pay you for and then put together the team and the resources to solve for it. As always, thanks so much for tuning in and we hope you enjoy this interview. Let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is your co-host, Mike, here. We got Josh in the booth as well. Josh, what's going on? Not too much, dude. Just, uh... How's life? My, uh, life's okay. You know, I'm living today. I was been on, like, high anxiety the last few days because I had to go in this morning to get this camera shoved down my throat. So, I, like, put me under. And every time they do that, I get all worked up and stuff. So I was under anesthesia like six hours ago. So I say anything crazy during this episode. We can just blame it on that. Probably. Did you drive here? Uh, I drove. Yeah, but I'm good now. Yeah, I got done. I You're just, not supposed to operate motor vehicles after surgery. No, man, I am good. Good to go. I'm and driving was, you home. It was a light uh, <laughs> It was a light surgery. And we're looking at us now. See, we're yeah, on the well, mic. Okay, there you go. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Now you got me worried about where you're going to be after this. So get some dinner. That's yeah, that's, that's fair. That's fair. Well, that's good. Okay, well, now that I know that Josh risked his life to get here today, let's hope it's a good episode. So today on the show, actually, we're really excited to be having a guest come back on the show for a second time. And we are talking with Bill Balderas, founder and president of Futurity. We had Bill on the show before we hit even 100 episodes. So a long time ago, actually, we're here on episode. Uh, this one's probably going to be episode 326. And we'll see how good I am when this comes out. 
but that's a long time ago. Since then, Bill and his team have been hard at work. Today, we're talking to Bill about a SaaS product called Huckle. Their team is getting ready to release to market. Bill and his team believe Huckle is the fastest, most accurate, and cost-effective way to build an audience persona. So we're here to talk a little more about Huckle, catch up with Bill, and learn about everything else the team has going on at Futurity. Looking forward to learning more about what he means by an audience persona and everything else. So welcome back to Conquering Columbus, Bill. Thank you both for having me back. Yeah, it's exciting to have you here again. And it's been a while. So, you know, normally one of the places we start, so for people who haven't listened and haven't been following for 200 and 20 some odd episodes. Shame on you if you haven't listened to all of our episodes, by the way. But for people who haven't gone that far back, can you give us a little background on yourself and kind of your story? Sure, absolutely. So I've been in Columbus since about 1998. So I consider Columbus home at this point. I grew up in a small town in West Central Ohio, St. Mary's, Glaze County. Went to school in Bowling Green. Met my wife up there and, you know, we lived up there for about a year. Came to Columbus shortly after graduation. And this was the height of the dot-com bubble. So coming to Columbus, I had my chance to work for my first dot-com. I remember coming here, I was interviewing at a few different places and some of the big retailers and food places and great established places in Columbus. And then this dot-com. And I remember my family saying like, not, not sure this internet thing's going to catch on. You should go with one of the more established jobs. Ended up taking that role, worked for a series of tech startups during that same time period, the next eight years or so. Was blessed to work with just some of the best CEOs in the city, worked for Carol Clark at Mind Leaders when they were going through their growth. One of the first companies in the area that took on funding and my first introduction to really understanding what venture was. And I think a lot of people in Columbus learned there. Worked for Pam Springer at Manta. You know, that's the predecessor that brought Drive here. And so got to have a front row seat to some of that activity. I worked for Mike Morgan prior to his UpDocs day. So I feel like I got the best MBA anyone ever could get working for the three of them. And then in about 2006, I decided I wanted to try it on my own. I went back to all three of them and I said, I have this idea to start a company. They all three agreed to be my first clients and was able to start webbed marketing then. That was a digital marketing agency, which today sounds very cliche and overdone, but this was 2006. This was before Snapchat, before Twitter, early days of YouTube, early days of pay-per-click advertising. So this was super early days. Not a lot of companies were doing what we were doing. In fact, geographically between Chicago, New York, there wasn't a lot of competition. So we were a small group of people punching way above our weight, you know, winning big clients, growing fast, was able to sell that company in about five years to Fathom out of Cleveland, which at the time was a holding company that owned five or so digital agencies. Worked really well with those guys during the acquisitions to start a joint venture with them called Fathom Healthcare. And this, again, was early days of things like patient satisfaction surveys, readmission penalties, the opioid crisis, EMR. So healthcare was pretty turbulent, but it created a lot of opportunity. So was able to work with them to build that company. We had 20 healthcare systems by the time I exited that, almost 900 care sites as part of our client base. I think something like 20% of the U.S. population received care at one of our clients. So we had a great ride there, exited that company after about three years, and then kind of took some time off, figured out what I wanted to do next, had a few things that did not work out, as probably a lot of entrepreneurs do. But I started Futurity in 2014, and it was really, we joked about not being able to say the name. It's not a good name. It's not easy to spell. It's not easy to remember. It's the case where the domain was available, and I didn't know what the company was going to be. So got the domain, put up a very general website, got some office space, and essentially just started meeting with past clients, similar to the, what worked for me before, asked, what would you write me a check for? What would you want me to build for you? And they all said, we have a lot of data, data analytics. We need help understanding that. And that's what Futurity became. So you talk a little bit about, and I know we want to jump into the new stuff today, but you, you mentioned about the failures. And I don't remember talking about that in the first episode. And I think we often are quick to skip over those in some of these episodes. So when you look back on the attempts that you went out and you tried something and it didn't work, do you recall 
how you knew when to pull the plug and how you recovered from that emotionally and all the other aspects that go into that? Sure. I think about those much more than I think about the successes. But the one thing I fundamentally believe is that the market is always right. So you can have brilliant PhDs around a whiteboard drawing up business plans and schematics and models. But until someone writes you a check, until the market reinforces that, it's not right. The market's always going to know what's correct. In these cases, one was the idea for segmenting textbooks and putting them out electronically for college students to reduce the cost of textbooks. The problem was this was 2005 when there weren't tablet computers <laughs> and not even a lot of people had laptops. Mm -hmm. So terrible timing. You know, we signed some deals with some publishers. We divided up some textbooks. But the fact was no one was buying it because no student wanted to be reading textbooks on a desktop computer. So mm -hmm. the market said no to that. I worked on a telemedicine startup pre-COVID before everyone knew what telemedicine was. I've had some great timing. I've had some terrible timing. Same thing. License the technology, was building up the brand, getting lots of appointments, but it was just the market didn't like it. You know, it was a solution that the market didn't like. And so after a few of those, I knew it was time to pivot. So as my mentor, Pam Springer often says, fail fast. And I failed a lot of things quickly. Well, what I think is interesting about that is you took those two things that the market didn't like, and then you decided, I'm just going to go ask the market what it wants. Right. And I think that's an interesting dichotomy to see like, okay, well, that didn't work. That didn't work. Let me just go ask the people what they'd actually buy. So I really like that. And so when was it that you first launched Futurity? That was in 2014. 2014. Was and so... I was doing some research, going back, digging through my sure. emails to figure out when exactly we spoke to you last. And it was February of 2018. So okay. four and a half years ago. Great. So before we dive into Huckle and some of the other things sure. you got going on right now, what's changed since then? What's been going on and how did you guys get through the pandemic? Like there's a lot that's happened obviously sure. between now and then. What really has changed in those last four and a half months, for lack of a better word? Because I was looking for something other than change, but couldn't think of it. Sure. So lots of stuff changed. So, you know, again, people talking about data in 2014, even 2018, people talked about they were aware of it. Now we're hyper aware of it. Mm -hmm. So the idea that data is everywhere, we have to accept cookies when we go to websites, people understand words like first party data that they would not have understood four years ago. So it's one part, this has just become part of our vernacular from consumers to executives. People understand data much more. We're producing so much more than we were even four years ago. So most of our clients, they're producing down to hit or event level data. So if you think about whether it's a healthcare system or a school or a retailer, every interaction you have with your phone, on their app, on their Wi-Fi network, on their CRM, on their email, the amount of data is just ballooned significantly. And no organization has too little data. They've all got too much and it doesn't talk to each other. So you may be Josh in someone's databases or Joshua or Jay, and your last name may be spelled wrong. And so you've got all these ideas of dirty, inconsistent data that doesn't talk to each other. That's been the biggest change. And so it's created a greater need for people to understand their data, a greater awareness for executives and C-level folks to pay attention to what their data is doing or not doing for them. In terms of the pandemic, it was tough. Every Again, I've listened to your podcast. I've talked to a lot of people. Everyone has pretty similar stories. For us, you know, I still remember March hit, March of 2020, people in a panic, people not sure what would happen next. One thing that happened with us was revenue still looked good. We tend to work on long-term contracts. Mm -hmm. So 12, 18 month contracts that looked great, but cash flow just disappeared. And we work with a lot of government agencies and enterprises who weren't able to process an invoice from a kitchen table. And, and I remember someone saying that, like, would you want us to be able to process access this money from accountant's kitchen table? We don't have a means to pay you. And so that was one of the first things we had to work through. We went through the PPP process. We worked with our clients. They gradually got their systems back online. And we worked through that. We retained most of our team. You know, we still saw as people went home, the need for them to manage their data, control their data. So it bounced back pretty quickly. We did a lot of work in the COVID space. We did a lot of work in public health. We worked with the COVID testing lab. So there were 
developers need to understand data. The wonderful thing is not to draw something good out of something terrible, but one thing that changed was, again, when we talked about dashboards in 2019, people pictured the dashboard of their car maybe, but because every day at two o'clock, the governor came on the news and he talked about the healthcare dashboard Mm -hmm. and it was like a Tableau or BI dashboard, the same stuff we'd spent years trying to educate people on, people now understood that. Mm -hmm. So it created this idea of data and data visualization that we were no longer explaining because we were sitting there watching it every day. So there were some learnings that came from that. What about the infrastructure of the company? Like as you look back from 2014 until what things evolved into today, and you're now able to turn your focus and put attention into even ancillary or new ventures and products inside of the company, how have you been able to build such a foundation that you can move on and start doing those things and focus on innovation rather than just working in the business? Sure. It's a great question. And we just have a fabulous team. You know, we've got a great leader on the operations side. He was employee number two. He's really helped to build up that team where he has full responsibility for it. The operations run great and smoothly because of his hard work. We have a leader on the sales side. So he's taking care of the business development, account management, customer service, marketing. And so by elevating it, and each of those have their own generals and lieutenants that are with them and supporting them. So we've got this infrastructure now that doesn't require me to be on every pitch. That doesn't require me to close the books at the end of the month. That doesn't require me to figure out the operations or the project management process. And part of what we did during COVID was start this Futurity Labs idea. We own the commercial building that we're in right now. We bought that pre-COVID, but when real estate prices and interest rates dropped, we took the opportunity to purchase more real estate. We saw opportunities for maybe training and development as people used to homeschooling. So we tried some online training academies. You know, Huckle was one of those things. So we made some investments. We kind of like a Futurity Ventures where we invested in some stuff that we really liked. So it gave us the chance also to start experimenting widely because really, really strong leadership at the core of the business. So let's talk about Huckle. How does an idea like that come up? Where does that come from? And what made you decide to invest in that idea? Sure. It was the deepest, darkest depths of COVID, you know, June or so of 2020. And the team was really looking ahead to what if these contracts are up? What if they don't renew? There was no vaccine. There was not testing. So really, you know, that existential questioning of the future of the company. So what can we do now to try to build something? And then we tried building several things. Huckle was the one that really worked out. But what we found was if you came to Futurity today and you are one of the nation's top healthcare systems with a lot of data, one of the first things we would do is do research on your patients and understand things like their lifestyle and their demographics. If you were a restaurant, we would do the same thing. If you were a government agency, we do the same thing. If you were a big retailer. And we realized no matter who we start with, we generally go into this research phase around understanding who our persona is and appending a bunch of data to their existing customer, voter, donor, patient, student data. And there are those big name providers out there that you can go for that data append. And what we found is, you know, they're not always super responsive. If you're working with a small data set, they usually don't pick up the phone. It's expensive. It's time consuming. It's not always super accurate. And we thought, what if we could cut those guys out, go right to the data aggregators, first party data providers and build our own tool. And then someone said, instead of just working with them, what if we made it self-service? What if you could actually upload a list? Do all the stuff that the experience of the world type do for yourself. What if you made that self-service? And that felt like disruption. You know, you talk Mm -hmm. about industries, tech that's disrupted things. That felt like, I don't think anyone's doing that type Mm -hmm. of moment. Hey, everybody. Mike here. We're going to take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. And we are very excited to partner with One Columbus. They really, really share the same vision as us here at the Conquering Columbus podcast, which is really building up the Columbus region to be one of the most prosperous regions in the United States. And One Columbus serves as the business location resource for companies across central Ohio and around the world as those companies grow, innovate, and compete within the global economy. And they help us lead a regional growth strategy that develops and attracts the world's most competitive 
companies, it grows a highly adaptive workforce and prepares our communities for the future, inspiring innovation across the board. Their mission really is just ensuring the Columbus region is a vibrant place to build businesses and careers. So again, we really appreciate all of their support. You want to learn more about them, go check out their website, columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be right back into the episode. Why didn't the ideal customer profile target on? So it's like an internal tool you're using for your clients currently, and you think you would automatically say, well, let's go after major healthcare providers. But it sounds like for you guys, you were more like, well, no, we can go after more B2C type businesses that are driven from an e-commerce perspective. So how did that evolve? Sure. What we found is we got a pilot group together, friends, clients. We had people from healthcare, from real estate, from food, from retail, B2C, B2B. We got that group together, similar to the other idea, like who would buy this? Who would want this? We gave them all free access to it. We let them use it. And what we found is it had the greatest impact for those consumer facing brands. They were able to use that data to modify everything from what sponsorships they did to what images they use in their ads, to what radio spots they buy, to what images they use in direct mail or in their offices. And so it created a shift of, yes, we're still going to use this internally. It's better for us than going to a third party. But if we made this available for people as a self-service model, especially those in the B2C retail or e-commerce mm-hmm. space, it really made sense for. So what type of information does it spit out once you put that data in? Like, is it like, hey, your target audience is 70% male, da 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 Like, can you help me understand kind of what the actual end product sure. that you get out of that is? Yep, absolutely. So we pulled down 36 data points. When we looked at what's available out there, so every app on your phone, when you use a rideshare app, you give permission for that rideshare app to license your data. When you mm-hmm. book a short-term rental, you give that permission. So data like Mike likes the mountain and Josh likes the beach is available because you book more Airbnbs at the mountains, you book more Airbnbs at the beach. Or if you tend to like nightlife because you've taken Ubers out later at night or you tend to take them to the grocery store. So all that data is available. Our rule was don't be creepy. You know, we want to be mm-hmm. the good guys in data. So we looked at the tens of thousands of data points that were available. We sat down with our pilot group. We tested a lot of different data points and we came up with the 36 that were really, really useful to them, but that weren't creepy. If I were a consumer, I'd be okay people knowing that stuff about me. So what's not in there is someone wants to ask, can you tell us who buys medical devices like insulin mm-hmm. pumps? We probably could, but we're not going to. Right. Could you tell us things that would indicate maybe someone's race, religious, sexual orientation, all those things we said no to. Like those are things we're not going to touch. The 36 things we do touch, one basic demographic. So age, income, education, male, female, home ownership, that sort of thing. Household data. So are there kids in the household and what are their ages? And then are there seniors in the household and what are their ages? We do car, boat, motorcycle, and horse ownership. That indicates uh, lifestyle traits. We do some lifestyle things related to things like charitable giving. Do you read best-selling books? Are you an avid tech person? Are you an avid investor? And then the, I'm picturing all the tabs now. And then the fourth tab is the lifestyle stuff. And that's the really powerful stuff. That's where we can say your audience over-index as music fans. And not only as as music fans, but genres of music, or do they tend to live live performances versus having a premium Spotify account? Are they general sports fans or are they baseball, football or hockey fans? Do they watch football? Do they play football or do they collect football memorabilia? Do they have a cat or a dog, a home improvement, DIY stuff? So the 36 things that if I'm a retailer, this is how a lot of retailers use it. They'll say, okay, here's my e-commerce site. Here's my brick and mortar stores. Why are my purchase prices and my cart values and my abandonment rate, why does e-commerce perform so much better than brick and mortar, for example? They would give us a thousand records of each and we'd say, oh, here's the difference. The thousand people online are 
this fundamentally different. Mm -hmm. Or during COVID, we did a lot of these. Here's my buyers pre-COVID. Here's my buyers during COVID. And suddenly, like what I'm seeing financially is changing. What's different? And we can say, oh, they've gotten younger, wealthier, more kids in household. Your menu items need to be more kids friendly because now you have younger people eating. That sort of thing, comparing Mm -hmm. those two data sets. The OCD... And me, like perfectionist, is yes. as I'm thinking about segmentation with respect to like 36 variables, I'm wondering how your customer base finds alignment between making sure that those are meaningful to them, right? Like, have you found any pushback in terms of, oh, I need different data points or I need a broader set of data points? I mean, obviously, you mentioned some of the things they requested that were a little bit creepy, but outside of that, are you finding those 36 are holistically meaningful for the broader audience? We did a kind of a, an 80 20 rule, I guess, basically understanding like what data sets would be most helpful to the most people. And that's where we came to. You can append the data. So we have a lot of really smart customers that will take that and then they'll add a column of their own data. That's, for example, who are their repeat customers or who are their most loyal customers? What customers they tend to churn? Who's one time buyer? Who uses coupons? And then they can run, put that into a Google Data Studio report and customize it with their first party data. But in general, the rule was let's go for the 36 data points that will satisfy the most people the most of the time. Mm -hmm. Well, we do get requests for one off stuff that we haven't added at this point. See, if you want to know the difference between me and Josh, Josh was like asking a really insightful, thoughtful question. And all I could think of, what was the creepiest data point you came across? <laughs> you would be shocked. I don't, even, uh, I don't think I don't even want to know. Yeah. I don't know if I really want to know. So no. we'll, we'll skip past that. <laughs> but so talk a little bit about once you get this out, people are using it, it's free. You find this kind of niche in retail and B2C. How'd you go about starting to develop a go-to-market plan and, and kind of where are you guys at in terms of the launch of this product? Sure, sure. So we launched an MVP in November of 2021. We bootstrapped it. We mm-hmm. had a great young engineer, actually, again, another Pam Springer follower. He was from one of her later companies, put together a team, you know, lots of outsourced contractors as bootstrapped as bootstrapped could be. Mm -hmm. We didn't want to take on any outside money for the MVP. Our pilot users all became paying customers. So most of them, or I think all of them converted to paying customers through word of mouth. We've got to cash flow break even, which was the goal of the MVP. So we got there, we negotiated a deal with the data providers. We had a workable, respectable MVP. And then at the beginning of this year, we said, okay, we're going to make the true market ready V1. So we got a higher caliber team of engineers, still primarily outsourced, but, you know, fixed the UX, made it faster, did the same thing, brought in a pilot group, did weekly check-ins with them or bi-weekly check-ins with them to make sure we stayed the path. It's ready. You can go to huckleinsights.com today and actually purchase it. But we're doing the true market launch in September of 2022 to really start to drive to that site. What I think is so cool about your story, and you remind me a lot of a mentor of mine, Alex Picasso, I'm sure you probably have run into each other in a lot of circles in Columbus, and just the organic route of the way that your story unfolds and like a lot of just very rational moves, right? So, and not the fear of taking risks. You start the first company by just asking the market, what do you want? And then solving the problem in a good way. And I'm sure that there were tons of hiccups in the beginning, but you evolve and then you get enough cash built up and you're like, okay, we're going to innovate. We're going to take another risk. We're just going to be rational about it. We're going to start lean and we're going to grow over time. When you look back on that, has that just always come very naturally to you just to see those paths and just say, hey, this is the next step forward? Or are you just driven to continue to build bigger and bigger and bigger? Like, I'm curious the mindset behind your ability to continue to perform in that way. Sure. I think I do tend to be pretty antsy and always want to be building and driving. So I think it's probably more the latter. I don't think I intuitively see those patterns or those things, but I'm just always asking what's next? What's the next problem we can solve? And then yes, when I can build a team that then that problem gets solved, build a team that can continue innovating and solving that problem beyond my skill. Certainly our head of ops is a better ops leader than I'll ever be or head of sales, is the better salesperson I'll ever be. But what can I do to think about the next thing? That's where I feel like I'm most successful and most impactful. 
Do you ever get pulled in too many directions? Like I know something I suffer from is wanting to solve too many problems at once. It's hard to kind of zone in, right? And figure out where you're the most passionate, where you think you're the most impact. What is the number one problem to solve? Have you ever struggled with that? Absolutely. And I would say during COVID, when we launched Huckle was probably about my worst case of that ever. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. we did, you know, we had Huckle going, we had the new real estate venture going, we had a, an online training academy we we're working on launching. We split the Futurity brand into the data and the digital side. We were doing way too much. And part of it was, again, COVID lockdown. I needed to burn off that energy too. And so I was just starting something new all the time. The team does a great job of reining me in. My family does a great job of reining me in and saying, you're doing that again. And I've got a picture on the wall of my office. It's a, I'm a Godzilla fan, but it's, you know, Godzilla crushing a city block, but the slogan on it is do what makes the biggest impact. Mm -hmm. And the idea is you've got these four things happening and, you know, Godzilla is not known for being a refined precision instrument. It's just smash. Like, like what's, what's the biggest smash I can make? What's the biggest impact I can make? And that's when I took a step back and said, okay, the real estate's a nice side thing, but that's never going to be where I want to spend my time. And the academy had a good pilot group, but probably doesn't make sense to continue and gradually starting to pulling the things off until it was, but the market loves Huckle and is buying a lot of Huckle. So, but yes, I consciously have to rein myself in. It sounds like you're the same way you meet like a cousin at a barbecue has this idea for a business. Like, Let's go inside. And you want to like start whiteboarding <laughs> it out like right then and there. And you want to, you know, make him a loan to launch it or help him build it. So it's the same thing. Yeah, it's tough. It's like Mike and I talk, he can sometimes feel like he is pessimistic. And I think I'm overly optimistic about <laughs> things. Sometimes I feel like everything's solvable. And then I have to sit back and ask myself, like, you know, where do I actually want to spend my mm-hmm. time and attention? What am I passionate about? And another guest we had on Chet Scott talks a lot about Opus. And I think that's been a very helpful aspect for me to think about, you know, where do I actually want to spend the time and energy? Because there is so many different things out there to solve, right? And then the more guests we have on and the more people you listen to other podcasts of, you realize, you know, it's not all about money, but there's just a tremendous amount of ways to make a living too. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of the day, you could go five years and you could fail miserably but if you went five years and you were passionate about it, at least mm-hmm. you got that out of it. And the chances of being successful, you know, are always a little bit higher. So the goals of the future now, like we've made it through these iterations and we're seeing market traction. How do you begin to then handle not only operating the company either as a new entity and like the operational aspects, but also the go to market strategy and scaling everything? We'll probably continue to bootstrap. You know, right now it's mm-hmm. generating enough on its own that we continue to do the iterative work. When we first whiteboarded it out, going back to your earlier comment, it did a lot more than this. I truly believe it's the fastest, most accurate, most cost-effective way of building a persona. But the original vision was, and then it was going to automatically do things like update your Google ads and your title tags on your website and the images and your email so that if 70% of your audience is cat lovers, it feeds right into MailChimp and they'll get a hero of a cat on their email when they open it. And so like the vision of like this API, this integration, this truly persona-based marketing is still there. I think the decision we're looking at now is do we treat this as a separate business, a separate business unit? Do we bootstrap? Do we go out and raise against it? So I think that's where we're at now. But the roadmap is beautiful. You know, in my head, it's like there's so much more we want to do. We had to get this kernel right first. But now where we could take this has me pretty excited. So from a sales plan perspective, getting new customers, bringing new on, are you imagining more of a sales led motion, a marketing led motion? Like, how have you guys thought about that in terms of the initial launch in September? Sure. It'll be in tandem. So we are doing some inbound marketing pools, mm-hmm. you know, through uh, Google ads, Facebook ads, that sort of thing. We're doing some media like this. So talking to folks like you, getting some podcasts and the local media here is always super supportive. And we are looking at partnering with a, an outsourced sales firm to help generate leads and start hitting the phones for us. Have you thought about long-term goals for Huckle other than scaling the product itself, but revenue targets, things like that? Do you guys have an idea of where you hope or where you feel this can go? We do have about a 12-month plan. Part of it is it's been really dynamic. It's surprised me the whole way. 
we absolutely should have a longer term plan. You know, right now it's really looking at 12 months ahead, being really product driven, growing with our existing clients who have it today. Eventually it probably will sit separate from Futurity. We'll require the staffing for it will be different right now. People are kind of double dipping. So, you know, the same sales and marketing folks that are mm-hmm. promoting Futurity are promoting Huckle, the same finance folks, the same ops folks are double dipping. I think it's going to be a different skill set, a different business. When you have me back in four more years, yep. uh, <laughs> it'll probably be a separate standalone business. Hey, everybody. Mike here to talk quickly about an amazing local organization, Casey Cares. And Casey Cares is hosting its inaugural 5K one mile walk on September 11th at lower.com field. The event is super special as all of the proceeds go directly to help the brave, critically ill children in our community as Casey Cares creates little moments and lasting memories for those who are battling for their lives. Casey Cares knows that the best palliative care comes from continuous ongoing support. And for families whose faith, relationships, and pocketbooks have been stretched to their breaking points, these programs with a special touch may be the only break many have from hospital stays and doctor's visits. To join Conquering Columbus in supporting this amazing cause, you can register for their upcoming race by going to caseycares.org. That's C-A-S-E-Y cares.org. Participants will receive a t-shirt, finishers, medals, and will be able to enjoy post-race refreshments on the plaza at lower.com field. If you haven't been there, lower.com field is amazing. So we definitely recommend you go check it out, but we look forward to seeing you there. Don't forget, you can go to caseycares.org for more info. Thanks so much for tuning in. Let's get on with the show. What other initiatives are you guys working on? What else are you excited about for Futurity? At the core of the business, just super excited about the level of problems we're solving right now. The sophistication of data out there, you know, being able to map out these diagrams and these technical schematics when you have just so much data that people are on. You know, you mm-hmm. think about, again, a healthcare system is a great example. You have claims records, you have pharma records, you have electronic health records, you have physician level data, and then you have lifestyle data and propensity data. Probably 70% of our business is in regulated industries and healthcare is the biggest vertical. So if we can help someone stay adherent to their treatment plans, adherent to their medications, what that can do by, you know, be able to predict their behavior, what their drivers are going to be, this becomes life-saving stuff. We get to work on issues like preventing infant mortality. We're working on issues related to the opioid epidemic. We did a lot of work during COVID and vaccine hesitancy. So the stuff we do, I feel like is really, really impactful. We don't put this out there so much in the forefront now, but still behind the scenes, it's that data and technology can solve the world's biggest problems. When we look for new clients on the futurity side, we really focus on things related to malnutrition, mass transit, you know, what are big problems that if Amazon knows what book you want to buy before you do, and if Spotify knows what song you like before you do, and if Netflix knows what movie you're going to watch before you know, why can't we use that same technology to fight addiction, to fight mm-hmm. infant mortality, to fight malnutrition? So that's what I'm excited about. That's why I jump out of bed every morning and I'm ready to get to work. Right on, right on. Josh, before we jump in, any last questions, you got anything else? No, I think the only thing I thought about is you were describing that, you know, as you look past Huckle and that starts to begin to create its own infrastructure and get an amazing team in place, similar to what you have right now. Do you see Futurity moving on to solve additional problems that you're identifying through this data with your clients? Like, do you think that is the path forward or have you thought at all about that? I think that's absolutely true. Part of my vision is that Futurity almost becomes like a holding company. And within that is Huckle that's identifying these trends and these patterns. And then there's, you know, a separate group that is, yes, building the data then to address those problems and a separate group that's taking the approach to communicate more effectively based on that. I mentioned a few times we worked on this online training academy and some of that came from the data we'd gathered during COVID about, you know, can we build this online training academy, reach, you know, kind of second chance students, recovery students, get them trained in these skills in these fields. We tried on our own. We did a few classes. It worked okay. But now we found someone that's doing that successfully, has a bunch of schools already, hasn't the infrastructure in place. And so now they're a futurity client and we're powering them, our data 
including Huckle and our services, are now powering their goodness and their impact in the world. I do have one other final question too. In the beginning, you were talking about, you know, mine leaders and the Manta and Pam Springer. And like, when you think about Columbus pre-drive capital, you hear about check-free, CompuServe, mine leaders. So you've been a part of a good amount of either relationships with the entrepreneurs who spearheaded a lot of those things or a part of the companies themselves. And when you look back on some of the most impactful moments, if you don't have any top of mind, that's okay too. But is there certain characteristics or moments that stick out throughout those experiences that have really carried with you and helped you to lead the company that you're leading today? Absolutely. I would point back to all three of those CEOs. So, you know, Carol Clark, when I worked for her, I was in my early 20s. I didn't know anything. I was a failed journalist. I had a journalism degree. I was in no way qualified to work at this company. You know, she took me under her wing. And because she knew I was interested in things like fundraising and venture and growth, you know, she let me be a fly on the wall in some of those discussions. And really just, you know, here I was getting to sit with this very accomplished CEO. She later got me involved in, with Ohio Tech Angels and just held my hand through that process. So I think those were moments. Pam, I can think of one specific time going into her office and I was taking a pretty big risk with one of our clients and, you know, she supported me and I said, this is why I want to take this risk. This is why it's important. And she said, yep, go do it. Just don't do it half-assed. And I still remember her like trusting me enough, but it's like, I'm not gonna let Pam down. I mm-hmm. think you guys both know Pam. Like you just, you want to make her proud. You want to make her happy with you. Similar moments with Mike Morgan, again, working for him and just sitting in front of a whiteboard with him. And a lot of it was some tough love. You know, they were strong leaders. They were great leaders, but just like your best teachers that you think back to like elementary and high school, they were really tough on you. They pushed you, they challenged you, the coaches mm-hmm. that it was good, constructive, critical feedback of the stuff you're not doing well. And I think they all three gave me that as well. You know, I would say I can definitely point to moments with all three of them where they had those discussions and I left, you know, feeling like I wanted to be better, like I was energized. Yeah, I think the best leaders, there's, there can be terrible leaders with high expectations, right? Yes. I think the good leaders who have high expectations, they have high expectations and you feel this when they talk to you. They have high expectations for you because they believe you can do better. They believe in you versus some leaders who have high expectations just for them and their numbers and their thing. Like you can tell the difference significantly when someone's coming at you and trying to push for you because they feel you can do better and they feel you can be better versus I just need you to do this. So do it. Right. And I think the best leaders have that in spades, that ability to make you feel like they believe in you. I find that really interesting. And I think it's a good place to head towards some of our last questions of the show. So first one is, any advice for our listeners out there? So a lot of them listen to this podcast because they might want to be entrepreneurs someday. They're curious about what's going on in Columbus. Any advice for them? I would say the market's right. You know, follow the market. I like fishing, but I could never make a living being a fishing guide because mm-hmm. the market wouldn't pay me to do that. So you might love baking. You might love something. A lot of people tell you, follow your passions. I'm saying, you know, follow passions that the market validates. So make sure that it's something that people want and then figure out how to build it. I took statistics past failing college and here I'm running an analytics company. That's because, you know, I didn't have the skills to do the work, but we live a few blocks from one of the top universities in the country and there's a whole lot of smart data folks there. So being able to recruit and build that. But I would say find the problem that you can solve that the market wants you to solve and someone will pay you for and then put together the team and the resources to solve for it. Well, actually, we were just talking last week to Kwame Christian and he talked about ikigai, which is a Japanese term for like when... You know, like your purpose in life, right? The things that intersected there, they talked about your passion intersects what the market will pay you for, what people will pay you for intersects. There's a couple other things. You have to go look it up and okay. find a chance. Look up Ikigai because it fits that kind okay, of Okay, that's perfect. Well. That's perfect. Um, I'll send you a picture that Kwame sent us after this. But our last question of the show is, well, typically it's centered around the theme of our show, but we've already asked you that before. So if you want to hear what Bill thought of living uncomfortably and how it applied to him, go ahead and check out our episode from 2018. And don't criticize us for our lack of quality audio equipment. It's definitely gotten better. So I'm going to pivot and change the question up a little bit. Obviously, you know, our themes live uncomfortably, but what's something you've done recently that left you feeling uncomfortable that you feel you grew from a lot? 
Wow, that's great. So I'm always picking up new hobbies, mm -hmm. not just new businesses or new work ventures. So I got into magic. So here I'm an mm -hmm. adult man, almost 50 years old and, you know, going to magic shops and, you know, hanging out with like a... If you want to know the kind of nerd I am, I assumed you were talking about the card game. No, no, even, <laughs> even worse, even worse. Like you're definitely on the hierarchy. And so, yeah, started doing magic tricks. Everyone at work will tell you this. I started doing it at work mm -hmm. and I would literally like tremble because it's like, if I screw up this trick, I'm going to look like an idiot in front of the new guy. You know, and someone new starts, I'm like, hey, pick a card or, or guess a color or, you know, reveal what you're thinking about. And so I literally find myself like my hands will shake, my mm -hmm. voice will crack. I can speak, I can talk, I can do a big pitch, but like doing a magic trick for the intern, like made me super uncomfortable, <laughs> but I loved it. And so now it's become like something that I look forward to doing when the new people start. Love so, it. Yeah. Love it. You haven't lit anything on fire yet? Not yet, but it's definitely requested a lot. Okay. Like, that's, what, that's what the people want. You right. Know? You want to see fire and yep. explosions. Exactly. So. Awesome. Well, Bill, it's been great talking to you. We appreciate you coming in and talking about Huckle and everything you guys have going on. So appreciate your time. Thank you. And thanks for everything you guys do for the Columbus entrepreneur community. You guys have built something really amazing here. Thank you. Appreciate that. And Conquerors, we appreciate you. So thanks so much for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, leave us a like, go ahead and leave a comment wherever you uh, saw this at. But if you want to hear more episodes just like this, more interviews, go ahead, hit that subscribe button. We release every week on Mondays, so you'll never miss a beat. And uh, appreciate all your support. We'll talk to you next week. Yeah.